Hello, everyone. Again, we have two people in the other rooms. Richard, welcome back. And Alexis. Hello, Alexis. Hello. <laughs> nice to be here. <laughs> Where are you calling from? Because we have different guests all over the planet. Right. I'm calling in from Paris, France. Um, although I'm American, but I've been living here for 18 years now. Right. So on that note, uh, explain me who Alexis Nikki is. So what I do is I am a narrative coach and I'm a storyteller. And that means I actually help people dig in and find their most important stories and live them with authenticity in the world. And I've done this with many different types of people. And for the past few years, I've been doing it within business, working with leaders and with their teams to um, get them to speak more authentically to one another connect on values and missions and purpose and build things together from a different foundation. Very nice. Um, so I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to ask a, a tricky question, I think, Alexis, in that uh, how, how, how has this industry become a thing? Because I, a lot of, the, a lot of the, the leaders and executives that I've known over the years would have said that's far too fluffy and I'm not going to not going to pay for something like that so so yeah. what what sort of the driving forces behind narrative uh, coaching and storytelling uh, well, becoming an important part of contemporary business um i don't know if i would agree with you that it's become an important part yet um i there's a big difference between creating a story that you share with the outside world that is meant to convince and persuade and the kind of storytelling that I'm talking about, which is a few steps before that. So it's, it's getting the internal stories um, settled first, internal within each individual, internal with a, within a group or a team, and then together building something from which there's a story that gets created that is shared with the outside world. So that sharing of a story to the outside world is becoming much more a driving force because we all need attention today. You know, there's so many things bombarding our senses. So how are we gonna get people to pay attention to us? It's through a persuasive and um, maybe entertaining story, uh, something that really sparks our imaginations and something that speaks to our emotions. And there's a lot of opportunity for helping people build those kinds of stories. What I'm talking about is something a little bit two steps before that, I think. But so what, are, what is two steps before that? <laughs> That's, uh, what, like I said, it's really becoming clear that we are storytelling animals. Um, we, that's what makes us human. It is the way we understand the world. It is the way we um, explain things to ourselves. It's the way we understand our own identities. We all have narratives about who we are, where we come from, and those are the things that help us make sense of ourselves. So if that's the case, that in some sense, it means we have an innate narrative intelligence. And so I'm all about really making people aware that they have an innate narrative intelligence, that we are already storytellers because we live story every day, we consume story every day but that it is like um, the water that fish swim in. It's something that we don't see, that it's a super powerful tool 
in both senses of the word, it can be super positive or it can be extremely destructive. It can be constructive or destructive, life-affirming or life-destroying. And when we're unconscious of it, we do ourselves a major disservice because we run our stories. We don't even know we're doing it. We're trying to communicate on a different level. We don't understand why things aren't working. And we have, you know, we have what we see each other through sort of warped story lenses <laughs> in a sense. And we have a clash of narratives and we can't understand why the other person won't see things our way. So I think it's such an essential part of who we are as human beings and getting people to see that is the difficult part. Because I think a lot of people think, yeah, 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 story. Soft, like you said, soft and fluffy. I need the story that's gonna sell my product. Sure, I get that. But I don't know what, you know, me working on my stories has anything to do with what I need to get done in the business world. The question I have as well, uh, Alexis, for you, because you started off, um, so we have a few terms here, right? So you have narrative, you have story and storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, explain me the difference or <laughs> what are, if there are any differences, explain that to me. Yeah, that is a big sticking point. I mean, it is really hard to talk about these things because the language isn't always there. Story is such a gigantic topic. So how do we talk about it? The way I use these words, um, and sometimes I'm more careful about which word I choose when, but the way I use this word, these words is for me, story is the big, the big umbrella term. Storytelling is when we're actually using our words to share a story with somebody else. <laughs> for me, that's storytelling. And narrative is, um, it's more the, maybe the cultural narratives that underpin everything or our internal narratives, those, those stories that are running all the time, when, if we're aware of them or not aware of them. That's the way I try to use these terms for myself. Um, it's what makes sense to me and it's the way I work with people when I'm explaining it to them. So uh, in business, you know, for example, there's a certain narrative of, you know, there's the, there are goals to be attained and that is all important, right? And on top of those, we have story that we create and live in. Um, but the underlying narrative is almost like the undercurrent that's going beneath all of those stories. It's, it's almost an, an unconscious, if, you, if you're talking about narrative, you, that's almost an unconscious probing. You're trying to reveal the unconscious, whereas story is a more active component where you're, you're, you're getting people to, to frame something very specific. I think that's what I'm, yeah, I think that's how I'm using those terms. And I say I think because, you know, this is a learning process for me too. It's like an exploration into this, this domain. Um, and... The way I came to this domain is um, it's really quite experiential, right? So I grew up as I grew up as a the child of Greek immigrant grandparents to the U.S. Uh, my parents were born in the States. All four of my grandparents were immigrants. My father and mother emigrated back to Europe. So already there was like a sense of who am I, where do I belong, sort of identity, right? We ended up living in Athens and uh, in an apartment where we could see the Acropolis and the Parthenon on one side and Mount Lycabatus on the other side. And on the Parthenon is the temple that was built to the goddess Athena. My dad would tell me the stories of the mythology of the goddess Athena. And for me, she was 
not just the patron saint of the city, but she became my patron saint. So I was like really attached to her and imagining her flying through the sky at night. And Mount Lycabettus was a, a result of some stones that she dropped that she was carrying to bring to the Parthenon. So, and I knew she was a myth. Of course, I knew she wasn't real, but you know, here was this building that, that was built to her and a whole city that was named after her. So I was like, wow, you know, there's something real at the same time, not real about this story. And at the same time, my father was telling me stories about the birth of democracy and the philosophers that were walking through town. And this was during a dictatorship in Greece. So I was watching tanks roll through the street and we had curfews at night. So immediately I was in like this clash of stories. I couldn't figure out what this place was. What, you know, what did it mean with all these like, but if there, I mean, there are gods and goddesses and then there's, there's you know, tanks in the street and there are, but this is the birthplace of democracy. And it was so confusing to me trying to find my way through that. And later I ended up living in Cold War Berlin, which was like another, wow, many, many layers of history and story there, narrative there as well about how people treat each other, live together, structure their societies, structure their civilizations. So somehow very early on, I was really intrigued by all that undercurrent of narrative and how we build our lives based on that. Yeah, it's interesting. You've gone into Greek myth, so am I. You know, the, 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 the firstborn child of, of Kronos and Rhea, so, so Zeus's eldest sister is Hestia, who is the goddess of the hearth. And, 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 and so sort of that's the idea that the goddess of the hearth, all of the stories appear after the hearth is there. That, that is sort of this mythological component, as you say, story is fundamental to human existence. Without the hearth to tell stories around, none of the other god stories necessarily appear. And or so the that, campfire, that, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that, it's, it's fascinating that, that you yeah. sort of also were, were birthed in the Greek myths and that was what, what grabbed your attention. And more than the stories themselves, which are wonderful, it was this idea of how an entire society organized around these myths. It wasn't mm. just the Parthenon in Athens, there are temples all over Greece to all sorts of gods, right? And there's vestiges of that time still throughout the country. Um, and of course, the wonderful thing about Greek myths is there's not just one god, there are 12 Olympians and then all sorts of other demigods and everything. And every personality type is represented. And, you know, it, it, there's something incredibly rich about those stories that uh, intrigue me to this day, yeah. So do you, do you draw upon, upon these kind of mythological themes in your practice? Um, I don't so much draw upon the mythological themes, but I do draw upon a lot on archetypes. I work a lot with archetypes. Um, can, can you explain that? Just Well, um, so very intrigued by the 12 basic archetypes that were defined by Jung that were drawn from, from myths and mytho mythology and, sort of, and the connection that he made between that and our human psychology. So, um, and I have come to believe through long hard work that we contain all the archetypes within us. They are at least latent within us, right? And each of us have uh, 
uh, are more drawn to or, or have certain archetypes that are more active. And these are parts of things that we see in our personality, right? Um, you know, some of us are more the sage and some of us are more the rebel and some of us are more the controller and the ruler. Um, some of us are more the trickster, but all of these archetypes we have inside. So when I'm working with clients and I especially see somebody say something like um, a leader, right? Who um, sometimes a, a female leader who shies away from like when I, when I present the archetypes and she's shying away from the magician archetype because it's related to a need for power. She'll shy away from that. Oh, no, 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 because, you know, power is a bad thing. So then we get to explore that. And we get to explore where does this magician archetype actually show up in her life today? And how does it show up? And how does it manifest? And, okay, is it, when it shows up there, is that a bad thing? Usually not. And if it shows there, is that a bad thing? Usually not. So it helps people then begin to integrate the parts of themselves that are powerful and kind of step into that and understand to change their thinking and their definition of what being powerful in the world means. It's not necessarily power over somebody else, but it means I have agency, I have choice, I have I, what my, what my actions actually impact the world. And owning that, very important, right? So how, how does that improve um, sort of the non-fluffy performance of, of, of a leader to, to, to have this kind of awareness? Because I, I have my own understanding of how it might, but I'd be very interested to see some, you know, you've seen it in real time occur. Right. So, what, so what kind of stuff do you see yeah. happen? Well, I've seen it, yes, I've seen it in real time occur, and I've worked with so many different types of people because I've been working one-on-one -on -one in different capacities for more than 20 years. Um, and what I see always is this leads to coherence, this leads to self-acceptance, right? And when there's a moment of coherence, a moment of self-acceptance, I see people relax and they take a breath and something shifts. And in that shift, they're a little bit more courageous to show up as themselves. And I think that is hugely impactful or potentially hugely impactful um, when we think about leadership. And we, when we think about what we're facing right now and what kinds of people we need um, to help us navigate through this. Is that shift accompanied? I mean, you see it as the external um, facilitator. Is it accompanied by a sort of a flash of enlightened self-awareness by, by the leader as well? Yeah, if, if there's not that, then, then I'm like, okay, I see that something happened. If the person doesn't see it yet, it's, you know, it hasn't, you know, but wh what I'm talking about is those moments of flash of awareness that the leader actually communicates to me. Yeah. I've seen that a lot. Yeah. The, the, what, what, what you just explained to Alexis reminds me a little bit, and of course, Richard is in the room as well. Um, he, he spoke about metaphors, right? So the archetypes that you are talking about is that are there similarities that is that fair and fair comparison in, in just how, how you use archetypes with metaphors um or if if not what 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 would be the difference well i think for example if we're talking about a metaphor as being something like an organization as a machine 
um, that can be considered a kind of an archetype. Archetypes aren't only um, uh, restricted to people and personality types, right? An archetype is sort of like a, um, you can think of it almost like the first idea on which all other ideas are based. So if you have an archetype of a sage, it can be expressed in so many different ways. You can have the wise old man, you can have the precocious little girl who just is a truth teller and just speaks truth in, in a particular moment. It can be really expressed in so many different ways. Um, and when we talk about metaphors, it can be the same thing. Organization as a machine can be expressed in so many different ways. So in that sense, the machine metaphor could be seen as an archetype. So one, one of the things I do want to talk about metaphors is, is, is how they entrap people into single perspectives. So do you do, you do something similar with your archetypes and, and, and the storytelling? Well, I don't talk about it that way, but yes. Um, because what I see is people limit themselves by not daring to go into some of the archetypes. They limit who they can really be, right? And also there is the other part of it, which is like, oh, well, you know, I, I know I'm this archetype, but I really want to be that archetype and all the disappointment and the, you know, I wish I were that way. I think I should be that way. And that's also very limiting, right? And um, so, yeah, I do work with the limitations of the archetypes, but I do it by encouraging people to step into and explore the other archetypes. So to actually have that experience of expansion for themselves. How do you do that? So how, I'm interested in sort of almost the methodologies and the tactics here. So, you know, if, if what's the process of, of, of getting people to do this, this um, um, sort of metaphorical, mythological, archetypal exploration? Um, I, I do have certain methods that I work, it depends on how the client comes to me. Right. If I'm doing one-on-one -on -one coaching, there's there's an offer that I have with eight sessions, and those eight sessions, the first four are all about working on values and archetypes and who the person is, and the next four is about creating the story that they want to tell. That's one way. Another way is I'm called in to work with a team, or I'm called in to work with the leader. Usually, I'm called in to work with the team, and then the leader does some coaching with me because if the leader and the team are both doing the work, then you know it's a mess. And in those moments, I find opportunities. You know, some, an issue arises um, and I'm like, oh, archetypes would be helpful here. So I might pull that out and work with that person sort of more spontaneously around archetypes. Um, but in any case, uh, it, again, it works one of two ways. Either I present the information and we sit around, you know, or by Zoom at this point, around a chart and we were talking about the archetypes and they're you know, telling me stories about where these archetypes appear or don't appear in their lives. And other times I might just say to somebody, wait a minute, who are you being in this moment? You know, what capacities are you drawing on in this moment? And what capacities do you think maybe you, you could add that might make the situation a little bit better? And then they'll think about that and they'll say something. And then I'll introduce the idea of archetypes and maybe walk them through it a little bit more fully. So it depends how the issue comes up, whether I'm introducing it as part of a structured um, program that I have, or if I'm just responding spontaneously to a need that I see. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm also quite interested. So, so, so I know from previous chats with you that one of your great success stories was was an Asian lady and, and sort of it wasn't really archetypes. That was the, the change of narrative. That was that was a probing of this underlying narrative that was yeah. restricting her from achieving and, and, and you freed it. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's it's a nice way to, to sort of explore the difference between what we've just been yeah. talking about and, and the other part of your work. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was a really interesting um, situation because the person, her, her superior who hired me to work with her um, is somebody that I, I've worked with before, a client who I know quite well. Um, and so I very much trusted his instincts when he was saying, you know, on one level, he was like, I, you know, this is such an important part of her job. She needs to write this email that's going to go to all the you know CEO and you know and and it's totally incomprehensible. But and I might have to fire her, but I you know she's so talented that you know I want you to work with her. It's sort of like the last, it's the last step kind of thing. So I trusted that very much. And going in there, um, and he was right about everything he saw in her. Uh, I saw in her too. She was very personable, very energetic, very really wanting to do a good job. Um, I'll take his word for it that she was a brilliant analyst. You know. Um, and are, you, are the, you suggesting you can't do financial analysts no. analysis? Like no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, looking. But what I can tell you though which is interesting because I learned these, this too. I can read the email and say, this is totally incomprehensible. And then I can read the improvement and say, this is comprehensible for those who can understand it. I still don't understand it, but it's comprehensible, right? So that's interesting to see. <laughs> um, so the more I worked with her, the more I just became curious about what was it that was blocking her. And, that, and I could sense there was some underlying belief. And as I remember it, you know, there, it was a lot of um, indirect procedures, which is something I talk about a lot and I use a lot. Um, so if, if, if you're really trying to kind of force an issue, sometimes you're not gonna get anywhere. So you need to try, you know, different ways. So I was doing a little bit of teaching about how to um, communicate data in a way that allows other people to come in. We were doing some, even some like more playful game kind of things um, so that she could step out of her, a little bit step out of her, um, I want to do well right away mindset so she could kind of relax a little bit. And in the process of doing these different types of things with her, it arose that uh, she was holding this really deep belief that, um, she could not tell her superiors something that she knew because in China, you don't do that. You, do, you never assume that your superiors don't have the same knowledge that you have. So the way you communicate is going to be very different. And she did not understand no matter how many times her superior told her, maybe I told her even in the coaching sessions, what you are being asked to do is exactly that. You're asked to present the data and also give your analysis, right? It's not just present the data, it's present the data and give your analysis. And I remember with her, I actually helped her integrate some metaphors so that her, um, her analysis would make 
more immediate sense to people quickly needing to read this email in the morning and then make their decisions uh, based on that email. So um, it was a very um, multi-layered approach with her. This was a little bit of information about how to communicate data using storytelling, stepping into metaphor and things like that. It's a little bit more playful approach um, that kind of had nothing to do with data and things like that. And just staying curious and staying with her until it finally emerged that this was the issue blocking it. And once she saw that, it changed. You know, it really changed very quickly. Okay, so, so there was so was this, again, was it a sort of a, after all of these oblique sideways tactics, again, was this a sort of this flash of insight and then, and then the, the change happened super rapidly. So she went from really not being able to do it to being quite skilled in a, in a very short period of time. She, uh, when she made this statement, she made it as if, but everybody knows that this is how it is, right? It took me to point out to her that her thinking was faulty. When she shared it with me, it was almost as if the only reason she hadn't shared it with anyone before is because it was so obvious, right? Why say something that everybody already knows? So she finally said it. And then it was me stopping her and pointing out and saying, you just said this thing, but look at what you're being asked to do. And there's a huge gap between what you think you should be doing and what you're actually being asked to do. You know, you're not in China, you're here, it's an international company. Um, you're being asked for this information, not because you are being asked to make a decision for upper management, but because they need this information to be able to make their decisions, right? And you need to be able to deliver that information as clearly and as completely as you possibly can. And that's when she understood. Alexis, you, you spoke, uh, you've, you've been talking about archetypes and metaphors, uh, and also in this particular um, story as well. Um, but it seems so you have a whole uh, toolbox of different tactics. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about going beyond the, the archetypes. <laughs> what other yeah. tactics you actually yeah. um, work with? Yeah. So um, I started to say, you know, my, my pathway to the work that I do today has been multi-layered. Um, part of it is really my own cultural confusion. Who am I? Where do I belong? Where am I from? That sort of thing. Another part of it is that I am a trained teacher of something called the Alexander Technique, which is difficult to explain, but in a nutshell, what it does is it's a mind-body method that's used a lot by actors and musicians and other people. Um, and what it helps you do is become aware of your habits of body and mind. So and close the gaps between what you think you're actually what you think you're doing and what you're actually doing. So um, what I just described with this client of mine was exactly on that based on that philosophy, right? She thought she was doing what she was being asked to do. She hadn't actually stopped to hear and to listen and to integrate and to understand what she was being asked to do. And until I was able to make her aware of that gap between her habit and what she was actually being asked to do, she couldn't see, she couldn't have that flash of insight. So um, 
that training as a teacher of the Alexander Technique, and I worked as a teacher for a very long time um, with, you know, musicians and orchestras and all sorts of creative people um, and also people in, in, of all walks of life really, helped me see that across the board, we, you know, we all have those same blind spots and how that works and how, I, how, how people can be made aware of those blind spots and what it takes for them to be able to step in and change them, to choose to change them, right? None of this is, people choose to change these habits or they choose not to change these habits. And I've actually had students who are like, oh, no, thanks, I don't wanna change that habit. And you're like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> but now you're aware of it, right? Um, so that was one part. And another part is that um, as I was training as a teacher of the Alexander Technique, I was living in Germany and I was translating. And I started translating for film and television scripts and, and, and I did a lot of subtitling for films. And there were a lot of bad scripts. I was, I was reading German um, scripts, translating them into English. And I kept saying, you know, I can do better th than this. I, I want to do my own writing. I've, I've always written. I've been writing since, since I was a kid. So I learned how to, how to write scripts. And I started working as a screenwriter, um, mostly for independent produ productions and also working as a coach for other writers. And it was the same thing. I was seeing the same gaps. I was seeing, you know, what a writer director thinks their movie should be versus what was the story they were really trying to tell. I became really good at seeing like, well, you're, you're writing all of this, but I think really underneath it, this is what's emerging. Um, and I was, became really good at helping writers see that and you know, then step into their stories and own their stories and actually tell the story that they wanted to tell, which takes courage and it takes, you know, it takes all sorts of things. So those are the you know, strands that kind of feed into the work that I do. Um, and basically what I did is I brought this way of being that I learned through the Alexander Technique um, and the storytelling piece, I, I've merged them together and using also some other tools because in another former life, I was also a visual artist. So sometimes I use, you know, some creative tools to get people to open up differently. Um, yeah, I do have what I've, I've kind of put together a unique toolbox to draw from and to help people step outside of themselves in a sense in order to step into themselves. So one more question, but the, because you, you, you talked about the Alexander technique and mm -hmm. I'm curious about how that would apply to, you said you worked with musicians and, and creative people. Yeah. Can you give me an example how you would apply that? How, how would that help them? Well, it, it's a mind body method. So, you, you know, it's something where, where they're learning how to let go of excess tension in their body and move differently and hold their instrument differently. So instead of holding a, you know, a violin like this, they'll learn how to do this. It's a whole, you know, it's a whole framework. Um, and me as a teacher, I use my hands on people to guide them into these different positions. But beneath that, so from, from the out, it's like story in a sense, right? Story from the outside looks like this thing that you create to share with the outside world, but there's so much more behind it. 
in the Alexander technique, it looks like it's something so you can learn better posture and better movements and the way to hold your, the right way to hold your instrument. But beneath it is the way we respond to stimulus and to stress, right? So for example, if we go back to the analyst, uh, her response to being asked to do this email was her habit because she hadn't even really heard what she was being asked. And she hadn't made the transition to she's not in China anymore, right? So she was kind of blocking that and she was running her habit. Musicians and actors can do the same thing, right? You've learned after years and years and years and years of training on your instrument to hold the instrument a certain way or even more um, insidious than that that your problem at the instrument comes from because you have two, your hands are too small. So there's really nothing you can do about the size of your hands. So you try to compensate by doing some other things and you've added stress to yourself, you've misdiagnosed the problem and your compensations are sending you in the wrong direction in another way. So when you begin to unpack all of that, you say like the underlying narrative is my hands are too small all right, are they? Let's try it. Let's check it out. You know, let's see if that's actually accurate. And most of the time it isn't. Most of the time there's, you know, something beneath that that might need a little bit of work. It might be the way you're interpreting the piece. It might be the pressure you're putting on yourself. It might be perfectionism. It might be, there's so many other things beneath this idea of my hand is too small. Because one teacher told me one time that my hand was too small, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of that going on in the world. There's there's some kind of script running underneath underneath everything you do that you're you're not aware of, and it and it prevents you from from acting out in a way that that um, needs to be. And I, I know people who you know you you in in other very good coaches who who try and make that script explicit. So every time you see it, you name the script, and so it becomes yeah. a thing separate from you. Yeah. So so I think. So the, the way I've, I've listened to and, and sort of understood what you do at the moment, we've looked at, at, at the self, so sort of the archetypes and, and understanding the self, uh, and then the sort of a, an unconscious dark side probing of some of these narratives that, that stop performance. But you were moving in towards more of a understanding plot. So creating story, longer stories, and and you know write, writing these dramas and, and, and mm -hmm. etc. So do you do you use sort of a, a sort of a deeper plot based structure in, in in what you do as well? You know, I am of there. It feels like there are two schools of storytellers, right? The plot driven ones and the character driven ones. And I am of the school of character. A plot is character because without a character having a goal and wanting something, who cares what happens, right? It's the characters who drive the plot. So um, that's where I live on that. You know, I do a lot of when I write my stories, which I haven't written a story in a while, but when I write my stories, it's really getting to understand who these characters are and then putting them in situations and getting out of the way so that they can respond to the situations as who they are. Um, and that's what I find so exciting about writing stories is is there, a, is there a specific mechanics to mechanic to that that, that you, you sort of get the, the character and they move through a journey of some kind uh yeah there's the basic hero's journey but more more interestingly than that for me because this is the kind of writer i am is this idea of archetype right 
in, in writing, we say that, and it is so true that the protagonist is the hardest character to write because the protagonist reflects the author in so many ways. So it's really hard to get the distance that you need on your protagonist to make them come alive in a certain way. Um, and after a while, I realized, well, you know, when you decide who the protagonist is and what their goal is, that's how you begin to imagine who the other characters are going to be. Like, who does this protagonist need to encounter? Who does he need to um, have as a mentor? Who does he need to argue? You know, who are the other people that are going to fill out this protagonist's life and either help or hinder him or her on this journey? And once I started seeing that all of those characters um, they are archetypes, but all of those characters are kind of related to the, those internal archetypes that I think we all embody within ourselves, that they all kind of reflect every, every character is a self-portrait of the author, right? That's when it became really interesting because um, you can then uh, explore aspects of, of these archetypes that you don't usually maybe have the courage to live in your own life, but you can live them differently on the page. And somehow that really made that come alive for me. And when I share that with, with the writers that I've coached, um, it's been really, really helpful for them as well to see that this is, this is um, a complete world in a sense that you're building with these characters and they need to complement each other. They need to complement each other. In, in a way that creates sort of dynamic forward movement in the story. And do you bring that into to the organizational coaching as well? This, this interrelationship between archetypes the, the, and, and the various roles everybody needs to play in, in order to, to progress? I would, yes, I would love to, I haven't done it yet. Um, and part of the reason is that I am, I'm in France functioning in French. Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the things that I can do with my one on one clients in English, I have a harder time doing within a French environment. My French is good. I mean, it's pretty fluent, but my. Um, it's more than language. It's a deep cultural understanding and, you know, getting inside of it. And part of my strength and what I do do in France is that I'm the outsider. But then mm -hmm. there are other moments where it really helps to be more of an insider. And I think when we're talking about archetypes and the way they're understood within a culture and played out within a culture, I feel like I'm a little bit too outside of that um, right now within, with some of the clients that I'm working with. What I do do is I really create um, containers and environments and safe spaces where people can explore their lived experiences together. So I can facilitate an emerging of you know, maybe there's certain archetypes that emerge that, that, that are visible within that particular team or within that particular company. But it's a different way of, it's more like if I see it and I can capture it and I can talk about it in the moment, then yes, I'll work with it. Rather than it's something that I'm facilitating, purposefully facilitating. Wonderful. I'm, 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 there's the way you're talking, there's a couple of things that keep on popping into mind. Um, so one is a, is a piece of research by Adam Grant, where he talks about um, the hobbies of Nobel Prize winners. 
and he and he he lists all the hobbies and and by far um the 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 the, the, the most the most hobbied hobby um the, so the hobby most of them have is is dramatic arts so so you know on one hand they're brilliant at their science but on the other hand there's this this ability to to play to, to be interested in stories and to play out stories and and things like this and then i've also been reading mcgilchrist's work on on the divided brain and, and he also argues that that the best training that you can get is dramatic training because you have that trains the left side of the brain because you have to learn the lines and that's the side of the brain that deals with learning the lines but then the right side of the brain with all of the multiple interpretations all of the emotions and and how you have to relate with characters etc cetera, etc cetera. so do, do you see your work as sort of contributing to within that frame and then you know is it possible that that kind of development is the thing that's going to create a generation of leaders that can step further than the, than the current generation? Um, so personally, I never think of the divided brain, but I do think of integration. I talk about integration all the time. Um, and I do see that we split ourselves all the time at work. And this is something that came up in the drinking dialogues that I thought was just, I can't believe I hadn't seen it before. I was in a group and I had said uh, something about how when we go to work, we're asked to put our emotions aside and, you know, step into the work and, you know, be productive. And, and I said, but, you know, we're human beings, we're not machines. And somebody else, I can't remember who said, yeah, and isn't it funny that we're trying to make our machines more human by embedding, imbuing them with empathy and with artificial intelligence? And I'm like, yeah, we are doing that. What is that about? Why are we trying to take the humanity, the emotional, empathetic part out of people and then put it into machines? Like, what are we doing? I don't understand that. Um, and to speak of metaphors, you know, the old metaphors of and I think it's continuing, you know, how organizations should be produce, 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 produce. And we're also telling people that at the same time, we need you to be innovative. We need you to be creative. We need you to, you know, um, be, be um, responsible and uh, take initiative and all those things. But within a context where we've actually kind of numbed people out of their creativity and out of the responsiveness and out of their it's not, not safe for people to bring up ideas. It's not safe for them to say this isn't working for this reason or things like that. So we're really asking, we're asking conflicting things of people. And it's because we have this underlying belief that when we want to, when we need to, we can just become machines. And when we need to, we can step into our humanity and our creativity and all that stuff. And we don't realize that that's absolutely not the case. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're 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 actually exploring the Gilchrist divided brain thesis here. He's so his argument is, yeah, we we we've got this belief system in organisations that we're this mechanic. We can be this mechanical, left brain, rational being, and 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 divide it from the right. Where, where all of these other, and actually know that, that, that whilst, whilst there's a reason for division, because the hemispheres are divided, the integration is, is everything. And, and because we've, and what his argument is over the, over, over the, the, the ages, we've either had holistic 
uh, eras, so the Renaissance and, and the Romantic eras were holistic, and left brain eras, which are Enlightenment and, and, and modernism, where we're forgetting the dramatic stuff, we're forgetting this, this more human stuff. So I'm wondering from what you said there, that the fact that we were trying to make robots look more human, is this an indication that we're beginning to see that we need to switch back? Or is it just a deep irony no. where you're just going, oh my God, what no. are you doing? <laughs> I think it's I think it's it's scarier than that. I think we think you know the people who are creating these AIs of course it's exciting for them and this cutting edge of research and it's deeply deeply fascinating, right? But I think on some level people believe that we can control this. If we can control the machine and control the emotion in the machine, then we don't have to actually deal with people and emotions. Right? People and emotions scare us because they're out of our control. So I think it's you know, emotion is okay here because we programmed it. We can unprogram it, right? But not okay in a human being. So I think that's where we're at. And I, I also think, and this is getting back a little bit to the deep lessons that I've learned through the Alexander Technique, which is really about the indivisibility of body and mind. So there is not body and mind, we, it's one and the same, right? So we're sitting here right now, we're having a, a conversation and most people would say, you know, it's a very intellectual thing. It's a very mind oriented thing, but my mouth is moving. My hands are moving. I'm looking at you, my voice, I, this is all body. It's completely indivisible. And you see, you know, an athlete scor scoring a touchdown. He's not doing it without, but mindlessly, right? Um, he's, you know, all out making a physical effort but it's not without the mind being involved. And it's the very same thing when we try to divide ourselves into like the productive machines and leave the emotion at home we never we're not rational beings we never leave the emotion at home everything that we do has an underlying emotional tension to it you know and even if it's the belief that i better produce this because you know i'll get in trouble if i don't that's emotion right there right so if you would look forward so what you describe is um Machines are become, becoming more emotional. Uh, who knows if that's going to work or not, maybe in 50 years. Um, but if that does happen, what, what would be then the role? Uh, can we become more emotional as well? Then? Because machine can actually do the emotional work that we're uh, not really good at. Um, I, and honestly, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't know about that. It's like a big, uh, it, you know, it might help. It might... Um, bring us to a point where we have to rethink who we are and sometimes it feels like that's where we're going who are we as human beings when we can embed machines in us um then what happens right i i don't know um and one of the things and this is where narrative intelligence comes in one of the things that is sort of like the last bastions of human humans versus machines is our ability to tell stories and um, there's a lot of advancement of advancement that's going on in artificial intelligence and um, the, you know, toward making AI more narratively intelligent. So there are already programs and algorithms that can um, take a lot of different inputs and produce a text that may be dry and boring, but actually coheres and makes sense. So there, that ability already exists today. Um, however, I don't know that 
I, mean, I really don't know because I'm not an expert in AI at all, but I don't know whether this deep immersion that we have in story as human beings that we've been talking about, these stories that we've received, these scripts that we live, the narratives that underlie our, our civilizations, will a machine ever be able to understand them the way we do? Uh, will the machine's understanding of them be more liberating somehow than the one that our understanding of it? Um, that I really don't know about. You know, I don't know about how when we interact with other people, there's so much that happens sort of beneath the surface and intuitively um, that we can't even grasp and maybe create data around to put into a machine right now, right? And, and that's, that's where the big mysteries are. But I think our ability, and this is probably another reason, or definitely another reason why I'm so, um, I feel like I'm almost like an activist about narrative intelligence, right? Because it is so fundamentally human. Um, and I do think that it can be the basis from which we can access all those capabilities we are really going to, we need already, but we're definitely gonna need even more in the future. It's not just about telling the story, but it's about how we respond. It's about who we wanna be. Story, you know, defining who we wanna be, like really, really drilling it down and getting to the core of who, do, who is it? How do we wanna be in this world? Who do, how do we wanna show up? Those are huge questions and it takes time and it takes effort and it takes work to get to them. And those are things that people don't have a lot of right now, you know? So, yeah. The, the other question I was thinking of, and if you, told, if you talk about future leadership, right, in terms of narrative, uh, if you look at, let's say, um, the leaders of the future, um, do you see in particular narrative happening or evolving or emerging that, that's uh, across, well, maybe within, we are based in, in, in France, but uh, if you look at global corporations, do you see particular trends uh, uh, emerging now? Well, there's, there are the narratives that we pay lip service to, and then there are the narratives that we actually live. And I think for me right now, more than a corporate narrative, I think one of the most obvious public narratives and narrative changes recently is, um, is the one that happened in the US, right? We had four years of a narrative that was very, very toxic. And now we have a narrative where um, there's a leader who is aware of the need to really turn that narrative away around and create a different kind of, it's almost like, okay, it's what I was talking about. It's, it's a narrative of who do we wanna be, right? Deliberately changing that narrative and trying to redirect it. Um, we see that playing out right now. What the you know, results are going to be and where we end up, um, how much Biden's gonna be able to do, I don't know, but he is deliberately trying to change that toxic narrative and guide us toward a more hopeful and positive one. Um, that's clear, I, you know, that reframe for me is really clear. I don't know that I see corporations any corporations right now stepping into a big public seizing of a narrative in that sense. Uh, I mean, yes, they're doing it, you know, for their companies, but not on behalf of um, the greater good. 
So I'm going to ask you, we always ask everyone a $9 trillion question. So, so we, Oscar and I use uh, $9 trillion as sort of, the, this is how much money is, is organizations are losing by failing to take on board a lot of this thinking um, and, and being dragged back into industrial age thinking rather than, than progressing. Um, so I'm looking from what you've been saying, the idea of the, uh, of the embodied self. So, so that, that, that we, the organizations accept the embodied self and it's a mind-body um, combination and uh, uh, take seriously um, the dramatic arts and, and, and the various parts of so narrative intelligence and narrative psychology and, and the fact that story is central to human existence and then potentially central to organizational performance. If we, if we, if we can put that at the center of organizations, uh, and I, I recognize it can be no more than an educated guess, but what, what would you see happening in terms of performance in, in, in increases? If we put narrative intelligence at the heart of our lives in organizations and otherwise. Um, the first thing that I can see and I've seen with my clients is this idea of greater self-acceptance. So I think one of the reasons that we disembody is because we don't accept ourselves as we are. We don't accept ourselves as limited and flawed and emotional and out of control and, you know, uh, capricious and all those things that make us human. So self-acceptance, right? And once there's self-acceptance, then there's less blaming of the other and less finger pointing and less division and more curiosity and more empathy um, that can be extended to other people. So there's that. And I think um, it would represent it possibly a, a huge shift in our values and what we consider important. Right? When we get in touch uh, with that, when we get in touch with, I no longer have to posture so much you know, to achieve. I no longer have to win at all costs because that narrative is toxic. Oh, I see that narrative and now I see it's toxic, right? Now what, you know, what's the opportunity? What can I do now? We have more choice. We, we're not in those, you know, deeply honed grooves of behavior or habitual behavior, we have choice. And when we have choice, we can have different outcomes. And that's the possible, you know, the, that's a possibility that I see. But I see it's not just in the organizations, we have to start, you know, in schools, the schools that prepare people for organizations, you know, people come into organizations already formatted for organizational life. Um, so, you know, and each person I think is, and also the other thing that, that I'm certain of, the more aware we are of narrative intelligence, the less likely we'll be able to, we'll fall for um, those faulty toxic narratives that are fear-driven and that are, um, you, know, at, you know, that we are subjected to so that somebody else can have power over us. Wonderful. So you went, you went a bit dystopianly dark for a second there, Alexis, but you've, you filled me back up with hope. So, mm -hmm. so that's wonderful. Thank you for that answer. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be interesting how this narrative will unfold over the next few years. And <laughs> um, we'll have to probably get you back in a few years time again and talk about the same subject. Um, Alexis, thanks for your time uh, and Richard as well. Thank you for the invitation. It was good fun. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.